นโมทัสสะบุกวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุกวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุกวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอุทังดัมมังสังขังนามัสสะก็ลองมาทั้งสิ่งแต่ 
it's the advice of uh, all the great teachers uh, and also it can be our own experience if we apply ourselves to it that, that by defining a period of time in a particular way it's easier to uh, make more effort So uh, Kath's been practicing as a Buddhist for many years and keeps her precepts and uh, practices generosity and meditation and so on. And, and some might say, well, what's she doing shaving her head and wearing white robes and going to join the monastery? Why can't she just be normal like everybody else? Which is sort of what, like, what my mother says after 33 years as a monk. She still asks me, when are you going to come back to civilization, Keith? and grow your hair. Uh, well, people say that because they don't uh, have an appreciation of, one, what we're really doing, what we're really committed to, what we're really interested in, and two, how s the language of symbols and rituals works. just to determine, okay, the full moon of, of Asala, for three months we're going to have this period together and uh, we can designate this period of time for doing particular practices. Like one thing we're going to hear in the monastery, we're all going to uh, learn to recite the Dhammachakapuatana Sutta. I mean, some of us used to know it and gotten a little rusty with it. Whereas usually it's the tradition also in monasteries that during the Wasa, uh, it's time for the monks to review their, their vineyard training rules or to pay particular attention to, to learning um, uh, chanting or doing more formal practice. Or well, here on the, during this retreat period, during the Wasa period, we, we uh, uh, encourage to stay up on the, the full moon and new moon nights and, and meditate until midnight. It helps us if we designate this period of time to do this. And, and without these encouragements, well, the mind tends to very easily uh, default to just doing what's comfortable. And yet we've all seen that by doing what's comfortable, we tend to not have the energy to address the real difficulties. Now, if we don't have any real difficulties, if we are not tripped up by our deluded conditioning, uh, well, then there's no problem. But in as much as um, most of us, probably all of us, do from time to time get tripped up by our deluded conditioning, uh, it can be skillful to, to put time aside and to make particular efforts so as we can become more focused and we can intensify attention and look more clearly. And, and, and so like to engage in a ritual like shaving the head and putting on the white robes and joining a, a spiritual community, this gesture uh, helps focus the mind. And there will be occasions during the, the next period of time when we are living in the monastery, all men living here, you know, that's bound to be frustrating. Um, but because you've made this determination and uh, you're here to practice, then uh, I'm, I'm convinced that you'll be able to turn the difficulties around. And that is the point. We all experience difficulties when we don't get our own way. And we don't get, when I don't get my way, there's this 
reaction, this resistance comes up. And if it's, you know, sitting in the meditation hall and the bell doesn't ring when we want, very obvious mundane example, or, or being asked to wash dishes again, yet again, you've done them three days in a row, and, and it's not fair, and, and Tan Hiriko, who's in charge of these things, should be more mindful. And, and uh, Well, maybe Tan Hiriko is very mindful, maybe actually somebody's sick, or maybe there's some other good reason for it. Uh, and we assume this about each other, actually. We all assume that we're all well-intentioned. And, and even if things sometimes seem a little unfair, whatever, our commitment is to looking closely at the nature of resistance. You know, what is it that, what is the resist reality? If, if Tanahiriko is asking anybody to do anything immoral, well, then we very politely say, sorry, I can't do that. But if it's just asking to do the dishes or do some cleaning be a little bit more precise in doing your duties or whatever, and we don't like it, that's fine. You know, what is liking? What is disliking? You know, sometimes living in a monastic community, we end up living with people that we actually don't like. Because unlike most situations in the world, we don't choose to live together because we like each other. You know, we choose to live together because we share an aspiration to realize that reality, that abiding that is not intimidated by conditioned liking and disliking. We all have conditioned liking and disliking, normal, and even if one gets completely free, there's still going to, the body is still going to have preferences. The body will still prefer pleasure and comfort over pain. That's natural, and the body is conditioned in certain ways. If uh, you grow up living in Asia and... uh, your body is used to eating hot, spicy, chilly foods every day, for year after year after year, and then you come to live in the monastery here, and then in the morning, instead of having this, this uh, soup with, with chicken legs and floating around and onions and, and chilies, you get our power porridge. Well, then, even if you're completely liberated... Well, there will be the experience of, well, that's a pity, actually. It would be nice to have a few uh, chilies with this. And that's what happened the other day where those, those Thai people were here and, and that uh, one young man came and in the morning said, I really don't like your breakfast. Uh, well, that was a bit unsubtle, you know, first day here. But uh, he was totally honest about it and uh, couldn't realise how p- attached I am to our power porridge. And it was good for me to see my reactions. But uh, neither he nor I are, are completely liberated or anything like it. And so, uh, so that's a slightly different story. But even if one is completely liberated, the body is still going to have preferences. But for those of us that are not completely liberated, what's the difference? The difference is that actually we're attached to our preferences. These conditioned tendencies that we have, these conditioned ways of, I like it this way, I don't like it that way. Uh, I'm an evening person. I don't like getting up in the morning, you know. Well, some people like getting up in the morning. I don't like staying up at night. And so we live in, in a community like this, and, and so the bell goes at 5 o'clock in the morning, and people come together for morning chanting at 5.30. And if one's a, a morning person and you love it, well, that's fine. But then in the evening, when you have to stay up late, you don't love it. Or if you're an evening person and you don't like having to get up in the morning, and just, we learn from that. And that's, that's the point of, of making a commitment. We make this agreement to stay within this 
this this boundary that we all do the same thing whether we like it or not we live together we treat each other with respect and then when likings and dislikings come up very mundane this is not a big deal we're not talking about you know serious dramas these are like little little tendencies of liking and disliking but in the context of uh, increased uh, mindfulness and concentration uh, these things can become quite powerful and that's where we can do it that's why we can do it and so making this uh, ritual statement, statement of commitment to living in the life of renunciation, as Visakha is doing today, can be a very skillful way of just amplifying or enhancing, uh, potentizing consciousness so we can see more clearly. And so determination and renunciation and also um, well, what is important and on this occasion worth mentioning for all of us, not just for Wisaka, but all of us, is, is the, the way that uh, the gratitude works. And I know uh, Wisaka has already expressed uh, how grateful she is to be able to do this. Uh, in this monastery, we haven't uh, had uh, Anagarikas living with us before. This is the first time we've had any women taking precepts here. We have, now we have Kusla House down the hill, and the situation is more conducive. And I'm very pleased, really happy that that is possible. And Risaka is also very glad and very happy that it's possible. And that gratitude, that gratitude is uh, profoundly important. And, and so also it's a wise thing to reflect on because uh, we can take it for granted. We might think and, and, and focus our attention on developing determination and renunciation and, and these, uh, these qualities and concentration and, and contemplation and... But the, the ability to, to feel simply grateful has a very important effect on the heart. It's very, it's, the heart can be, when the heart is grateful, the heart is expanded and accommodating. When the heart is not grateful, when it's discontented and, and even resentful, then the heart is, how is it? What happens? It's, it's contracted and... And limited, and and in terms of working with our condition, working with our preferences, investigating the conditioned tendencies of mind, investigating the obstructions, the things that keep us making mistakes all the time, and 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 creating causes for suffering, and all those things that the Buddha was encouraging us to look into when he he gave the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta, uh, this discourse that we're about to recite. Uh, when, when we actually lose perspective and, and get caught up in, in, in creating the suffering, we need a lot of space. We need a lot of ability to be able to reflect on it. If the heart is contracted and as it is when it's mean and resentful, then it's very difficult to work. To, to do this work of investigation, gratitude uh, is, is profoundly important. And so... I raise it on this occasion because you know, we, can be, we can be cruising along and, and feeling, feeling uh, okay about our life, but taking something like gratitude for, for granted. Whereas if we have an experience of, for instance, going through some suffering, whether it's physical suffering or, or with feeling, feeling threatened or feeling, falling into doubt or resentment or... And we recover from it. When we recover from it, 
And then if we can just at, at that time reflect on the feeling of gratitude, you know, when we've recovered from a feeling of loss or feeling threatened, and we have a feeling of, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful you know, to have gotten over that. Or, or the people that we have to live with, like maybe you've had, some, had to put up with somebody really difficult and, and then things have been resolved or that person's left or whatever and then you've, you're with people who you can trust and, and have confidence in and, and that, the wonderful sense of harmony that there can be in such a situation. And, and then the feeling of gratitude naturally arises. Well, I'm suggesting that we make that as an object of mindfulness to be mindfully grateful and to feel. What is their feeling of gratitude? Well, I've discovered, as I said before, that it's, it, the heart is expanded when it's grateful. It's very accommodating. It's very forgiving. It's very, it inclines towards contentment when the heart is full of gratitude. Yeah. We're less likely to be pulled out by the tendencies to get greedy or, or hypocritical. When there's gratitude, there's a sense of, of easefulness, spaciousness and easefulness. And, and if we make an object of it, well, then we can, we can also simply meditate on it. So I find this sometimes quite inspiring just to, just to sit and to say the word, gratitude. Gratitude or gratefulness. And little by little, you can start to think of all the things that you feel grateful for. And think of times when your body was really had acute pain or... You weren't sleeping or you're suffering from a sense of terrible loss or loneliness. And all those things have passed and, and our minds are incredibly good at forgetting. And so we get used to feeling you know, reasonably comfortable and we take it all for granted. But if we make an object of gratitude, it, it skillfully expands the heart and, and, and gives us access to well-being and contentment. And so it's a very skillful thing to do. So... Uh, beginning the Wasa period together and also uh, marking this occasion of, of Wisaka taking the eight precepts as an Anagaraka here in this community for this period of time. Yes, recognizing the need for determination. Yeah. There will be plenty of opportunities to exercise that and for focus, increased concentration, discipline around meditation, formal practice. Uh, but to match that also with an appreciation for how something like gratitude works and, and how it's something that we can, we can cultivate. Yeah. There's a better chance that, that uh, when we have a heart of gratitude, there's a better chance that our minds are not going to go out of balance. Mm-hmm. It's very easy in practice because of our deluded conditioning to go out of balance. Yeah go off one side or the other and get too extreme in our practice. And you know, this, is, this is normal for human beings. All deluded human beings make this mistake. The, the, before the Buddha was enlightened, before he was the Buddha, he himself made this mistake. And he talked about it in the, the Dhammajaka Sutta. We're going to chant it in a minute. He talks about how he started off with karma sukhanikani yogo, you know, indulgence in, in pleasure, sensual pleasure. And thinking that that's the way, you know, even if it's subtle sensual pleasures, you know, like, like the uh, subtle pleasures that can come with meditation, and there's something that Buddha himself did for a while. You know, he just got himself skilled in, in supremely refined states of mind, but 
the bliss and pleasure and joy that came from those supremely refined states of mind didn't take into liberation. So he left those teachers and moved on. And, and, uh, but he also went to the other extreme, which he referred to as Atakilamatana Yogo, or in English we usually translate as self-mortification, which is this flipping from indulging in pleasure to actually somehow taking a position against pleasure and feeling that all pleasure is threatening and that, that somehow indulging or identifying with the sense of pain of I'm suffering is somehow virtuous. And in, in various ways, you know, we can see ourselves doing this as well. You know, sometimes when people get lost in depression or guilt and these kind of neurotic tendencies, in a sense, this is what's going on, that the, the mind has become so distorted that it somehow feels that hanging on to pain is going to be good for us. Now, the evidence is that it, it's not good for you in any way, not good for the body, not good for the mind, not good for the heart, not good for the planet. Uh, getting lost in, in, uh, in pain, uh, it does not give us uh, well-being or freedom. Getting lost in pleasure does not give us uh, increased well-being or freedom. And uh, so if the heart doesn't experience gratitude and, and the heart is, is contracted, whether it's with resentment, bitterness or greed or, or whatever form of delusion, yeah, then we can very easily flip-flop between these various forms of extreme. And so a heart of gratitude is really helpful for cultivating this, what the teaching the Buddha gave us called the Majjhima Patipata, the middle way. Yeah, this middle way. Now, this middle way is not just a place of mediocrity. You know, sometimes you know, people will translate the Buddha's teachings as the middle way as not too much of this, not too much of that, you know, being boring, in other words. And, and there are sometimes Buddhists can get boring because they attach to a position of I mustn't have pleasure, I mustn't have pain, I must be in the middle. Well, in, uh, again in this discourse, uh, we, we don't just chant the party, but hopefully also over the next three months get round to becoming very familiar with the English translation of it, that it's attachment to anything that's the cause of suffering. Uh, even attaching to, to uh, our ideas of practice uh, is going to lead us to suffering. And so the contemplation that we are uh, are being inducted into with this, uh, this discourse, uh, uh, Dhamma Chakra Sutta, uh, the contemplation we're being inducted into is one that aims to, to educate the heart around this. Whenever we're suffering, whenever there's stress, whenever there's tension, whenever there's conflict, on whatever level, gross or subtle, yeah, however it manifests, that we get interested in the reality of it. Yeah. Our condition tendency is, how can I get out of here? How can I get rid of it? You know, whether it's somebody else who's causing me suffering, or the world, or my body, or, or tendencies of mine, you have these different forms of, of, of uh, somehow resisting and rejecting uh, what we perceive to be the causes of our suffering. But what this training is encouraging us to do is to get more subtle, look more deeply and to see the real cause of suffering is in some level we're holding on to the wrong thing. Yeah. Now, again, this is not 
to overly spiritualize all our suffering. We, we take a position, grasp the idea that, that we're supposed to resolve everything by unearthing all the root causes of, of suffering by looking at subtle desires and attachments in our mind and not pay attention to what's going on in the world. Well, that's another fixed position. We're not talking about that either. Those people after the meal today who came and asked me about how to deal with the various difficulties and, and uh, discussion was around this, finding the point of balance where the bottom line is, yes, the cause of all suffering is rooted in ignorant desire. And that needs to be understood as this teaching is about. If we have that as the priority of our investigation, the, the primary orientation of our attention, and we have that message that that's where we're always looking, well then, yes, there's also sometimes uh, situations where you know, we need to engage the external world and do things about what's going on. Yeah. So if, uh, if our chores master thinks that um, you know, somebody's not doing their chores properly here in the Dhamma Hall, that... that uh, People are, uh, are spraying the plant over there and uh, the water goes all over the floor and the floor is being damaged and they don't want the moisture up afterwards. And he comes along and he sees it and he gets annoyed. Uh, and he thinks, oh, well, I must look at my mind. I mustn't say anything. And so the next day it happens again. So I must look at my mind. I mustn't say anything. And the next day it happens again. I must look at my mind. I mustn't say anything because I'm annoyed. Well, sometimes there's a situation where even though you're not completely liberated yet, that you still have to do something. Yeah. So yes, the bottom line is we're watching our minds and looking to see our attachment that are causing to leading uh, to the arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. Yes, that's what we're doing primarily. But keeping the precepts in mind and, and the certain boundaries we don't go beyond, there's still things that sometimes we need to do, we need to say things, even if we're not completely free from defilement. So it's not taking a position even against uh, engaging uh, in the world and, and doing things. Mm. But finding that, that place of balance over and over again because we do also lose the place of balance. And that's why one of the advantages of making a commitment to whether it's going on retreat for a few days, some of you are here to be on retreat for a few days and some of you come on retreats for a week or so at a time, or many weeks, or as the case may be. To define this period of time, it's a ritual, it's a symbolic gesture, but what it does is it helps focus our attention in a way whereby we're, we're better able to see these conditioned tendencies where we're likely to go out of balance. Where do we go out of balance? How do we go out of balance? This containment, this definition can be very skillful in that way. And so maintaining a heart of gratitude uh, can be one of the ways of helping us be more balanced and open and reflective. Grateful for the situation we have now. Also, I think it's worth mentioning, uh, particularly on this occasion of Asala Puja, uh, grateful for that which has brought us to this situation. So those of you who know the story of, of the Buddha and... Um, after his enlightenment, when he felt ready, he cast his mind around and, and he thought, uh, who should I teach? And the immediate impulse was, who should, I, who should I give the benefit of my understanding to? His immediate impulse was to go and see his previous teachers. Yeah. 
he didn't think, oh, those guys, you know, they lost the plot. They didn't, they, you know, they, they couldn't give me the real teachings anyway, so just forget about them. You know, the first impulse the Buddha had was to try and give benefit to his previous teachers, those who had benefited him, even if they were still suffering from delusion, even if they didn't know as much as he knew. You know, his first impulse was, how can I bring the benefit? You know, how can I help them? And, uh, and that's very important. You know, when we're doing something like this, you know, uh, making this commitment to, to this period of training and this particular path of practice. Uh, yes, maybe there's other teachings that we've left behind or other teachers or other situations that we've left behind, but we maintain a heart of gratitude towards those teachers and those teachings for what they did give us. We can benefit from everything that's ever happened to us. And, and if we don't have a heart of gratitude, well, then there can be uh, the opposite, which can be a sense of... of of uh, a discontentment or, or even a criticism and that inhibits our appreciation of, of, of the training, of the opportunity for practice. And so the Buddha, casting his mind around, uh, saw that all the previous teachers actually had passed away. They were dead. They weren't available. So he wasn't able to go and see them and pass on the benefit of his new understanding. And so the, the next thing was his, um, they were referred to as the Panchawagi Bhikkhu, uh, the five, five companions who had previously practiced with him. But uh, they were great re- renunciates, great ascetics, and, uh, and when they saw uh, Siddhartha Gotama as he was then uh, taking a little milk rice from, uh, from this, this village girl, and uh, they thought, well, he's gone soft, and so they rejected him. They, they felt disillusioned. They thought that they thought that actually their companion was the one who was really going to crack it. He was the one who was going to reach liberation. But then when they saw him getting soft, they rejected him. And it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And there he was, left alone, under the Bodhi tree. He'd lost everything. And, uh, and this, his, all he had was his, the accumulated parameter of his previous determinations and this tremendous resolve, this unshakable resolve, to realize perfect liberation. And so the fact that he was rejected by even his closest friends uh, didn't do him any harm at all. And that's not a bad thing to remember at various stages of our practice. However, on this occasion when the Buddha thought, who will benefit from my understanding, and his mind went round, he thought, oh, these five, these five people, they're ready. They're ready to hear this. Now, not everybody's ready to hear this. And that's another thing worth contemplating as we... Over and over again, remember to bring our hearts, bring our minds back to the experience of suffering and investigating the suffering of our lives. As we do this, we also need to check to see that we're ready for this. In examples in the scriptures where, where the Buddha uh, was, delivered the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, but before he did so, he was cautious to check to see, is, this, is the person who, who I'm teaching, are they ready to hear this? And sometimes... Uh, the, the Buddha would go through these stages of giving different teachings on how somebody could make them just make themselves happy. Just how to be just contented. Because if we don't have a certain level of contentment and self-respect and ease of being, then uh, to try and penetrate into uh, understanding the Four Noble Truths, well, maybe it's just going to bring in more resistance than we need. And so this is also a helpful thing to remember, to in terms of keeping balance. But on this occasion, uh, uh, the Buddha with his, uh, 
his wisdom high cast around was able to see all oh, the Panchawagi Bhikkhu are ready they have the conditions in place uh, and so he did he approached them and and um, initially uh, you know they weren't uh, they weren't very keen to see him because they thought he'd gone soft uh, if they'd known who he was of course they would have rushed up as soon as he started to approach them and taken his sandals and given them water for his feet and refreshment and put a seat down for him, but initially they weren't uh, inclined to do so. However, uh, as the Buddha got closer and and they they started to realize uh, what they were dealing with, then they responded in an appropriate way. And then when the time was right, the Buddha gave us this discourse, which um, we're about to chant, which is known as the the Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, or initiating the turning of the wheel of truth. Yeah, on this occasion, the, the Buddha gave this teaching and initiated the turning of the wheel. And this wheel has been turning ever since. Here we are, 2,500 years later, this wheel is still turning. Why is this wheel still turning? Well, it's because the people are still practicing it. Now, sometimes people talk about, oh, we're into the Kali Yuga, we're into the Dark Age, the Dhammer Ending Age, the Dhamma's going to fade out. Yeah, and they can maybe look up various scriptures and try and calculate from what was recited and repeated and written down thousands of years ago about when the Kali Yuga started or what was going to start and how long it's going to last and so on and so forth. But I think it's uh, wiser to reflect that uh, so long as the Dhamma is still here and there's people still practicing it, well, the Dhamma wheel is going to keep turning. And it's something that we can feel good about. It's something I feel good about. Any opportunity we have for practicing Dhamma, any opportunity we have for, for bringing our hearts and mind in a line with Dhamma, when there's suffering, when there's stress, when there's tension, instead of following our conditioned reaction to buy into the resistance and to compound that dukkha, we turn our attention the other way and look inwards and consider, contemplate, feel for the cause. Where are we resisting? Where are we holding? Where are we creating the causes for suffering? And every time we do that, we help this wheel the wheel of Dhamma, we help keep it turning, which is for our benefit and for the benefit of others. And so on this occasion of marking the, uh, the Asala Puja and, and celebrating Visakas, taking the precepts here, uh, it's a great joy uh, to see you making this determination and I encourage you that uh, you think about it as, as yes, it's uh, for benefit for you, but also benefit for others. I uh, wish you well. Yeah, well. Om Namaya Namakataya Sadhu Kara